So open your Bibles to the first verse of Corinthians 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7. This is how Paul opens this chapter. He says, Now for the matters which you wrote about. Previously, uh, Paul, he'd addressed uh, several major issues about division and sexual immorality and things that he had noticed and observed. But now in this part of the book, something changes and he begins to respond to questions and concerns that the people had. Uh, Like any fresh young follower of Jesus, I'm sure you'd know or maybe have experienced yourself, uh, young Christians were full of questions. Uh, And this is what makes a large portion of the rest of Corinthians. They are full of questions they have for Paul, trying to figure out how they should live as Christians in a really complicated town. Uh, If you were to skim through 1 Corinthians, uh, like where's Wally from your childhood, and pick up this phrase, now for or now about, you'd notice that Paul uses it uh, quite a number of times here. Verse 25, for example, Paul says, now about virgins. 8.8 verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. 12.1, now about gifts of the Spirit. And 16.1, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Right, you get the idea. These are all questions that people have thrown Paul's way and he's addressing them one by one. Uh, You can almost picture Paul sitting there with their letter open in front of him as he's writing a response to them. They're full of questions that any fresh, uh, young and diverse church, particularly situated in a place like Corinth, would have. It seems that they're eager uh, to know how to live godly Christian lives. They're eager to know how to honour Jesus in this large city. Now, if you remember Corinth, uh, it's a place of unchecked sin. Uh, It's a place of indulgence and debauchery. Uh, But it's also a place of trade and multiculturalism and great opportunity. Um, It sounds a lot like pretty much any modern Western city you'd come across, really. And so when we come to chapter 7, we see the first of these questions that they ask Paul. Uh, Now for the matters which they wrote about, uh, Paul says this is their question. It's a quote from them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you know where we've been, you'd you'd understand why this is so striking. Uh, This question, it was likely prompted because of the rampant sexual immorality that they had seen in the city streets. Uh, They'd seen the prostitutes come out at night. They had seen the drunkenness and the greed which characterised many residents of Corinth. Uh, In fact, there was a title. If you were considered to play the Corinth or to be a Corinthian, you were generally a drunk person. That's how they saw them. Now, these people, they've received the gospel, the Corinthian church. Uh, The light had shone in the darkness and continues to shine. It had shined on their darkened souls and awakened them. But then for some of them who saw all of this sin wrapped up in sex, decided it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Full stop. They've seen how entrenched the two things are, sin and sex, like peas in a pod, and they've decided that all sex can potentially lead to bad sex, and so the solution then is just not to have it at all. None whatsoever. You can almost hear them going, like, abstinence, it's a good thing for the holiness of God's people. That's probably the, the kind of mentality behind the phrase here. Now, 
This is an amazing contrast from the chapters we have seen, uh, where some of the Corinthians, they thought it was perfectly fine, for example, to go and sleep with a prostitute and then the next day turn up to church. They saw the human body potentially as meaningless anyway because it's something that's going to be thrown away. God's going to destroy the body. So why not just live your best life now and still rock up to church? I mean, it's okay. God would understand. So on the one hand in the church, you had the kind of sex anywhere, anytime camp and the total sexual liberty camp. And on the other hand, you had the no sex at all camp. It's completely sinful. We need to get rid of it full stop. There's almost a bit of theological whiplash going on between the people inside the church as you're being pushed from one extreme to the other in this church in Corinth. But it's here, at precisely this moment, in this chapter, that Paul does something really interesting. Uh, Instead of giving a a one-sized-fits-all answer, uh, he meticulously goes through every kind of relationship he can think of and provides a very nuanced set of answers to this initial question. Uh, He tailors his response about sexual desires based on people's circumstances and, strangely, their giftings. Uh, But before we dive into the nitty-gritty of the text, um, I want to give us an anchor to hold on to. Steve uh, made mention of it right at the beginning. Uh, It's something to help us find our bearings as we dive into this passage, Um, especially as we come across some of the more confusing parts. Uh, If you cast your eyes down to verse 17, it's up there as well. We can see that in the midst of all this talk about marriage and singleness, about sex and celibacy, Paul's greater desire is that we will honour God in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to us. That's the key to the whole chapter. Um, If you do underline things in your Bible, there's a good one to do for this passage. Uh, That's the one to highlight, put a sticky note in it, whatever you can, to refer back to that as we go through. So if there's one thing that you want to come away with, that's it. All of you should, should consider how you can glorify God wherever you're at in life. So that's where we're headed. Uh, Now that we have our bearings, um, we're going to take a very brief excursion into this idea of gifts, as Paul calls them, in the context of relationship, Uh, specifically what they are and probably more importantly, uh, what they aren't. So if you are following along, uh, we're going to point one. God has given gifts to all Christians, what they are and what they aren't. Now, the Corinthian church, uh, if you read it from beginning to this point, you'll notice that they are a very, very gifted church. Uh, Back in chapter 1, Paul highlights their giftings uh, in these words. He says, For in him, in Jesus, that is, you have been enriched in every way. In all kinds of speech and all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Right, these are a very gifted bunch of people. God had been extraordinarily gracious to them. In fact, they were so gifted that their gifts eventually became a point of issue in just about every way. So we've seen already that they've argued about who is the best preacher, um, but later on they argue about who had the more spectacular gifts. You know, those that can speak in tongues versus those that can heal and those that prophesy and all these things. They begin arguing about the gifts that God had given them. And these tensions arose because they'd forgotten 
that God was the one who had freely and graciously given them their gifts. Right? They didn't earn these gifts in any way. They didn't twist God's arm. They didn't pray extra hard and God thought, all right, you're doing the right thing. I'm going to give you that gift. Rather, God, in his infinite wisdom, apportioned gifts to each as he pleased. And by the time we reach chapter 4, uh, Paul highlights this saying, for, for what makes you different to anyone else? Anyone else around you in the church or in the other churches? What makes you different from anyone else? What did you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? This is Paul's way of saying that every gift you have is the gift of your holy and loving creator. And we need to keep that in mind because Paul talks about giftings here in a way that might be hard to hear, but I think when we understand it properly, it makes sense. So amazingly, in chapter 7, Paul speaks about gifts, but here uh, he speaks of gifts in a very different way. In the context of marriage, in the context of singleness, in the context of celibacy and sexual desire. Now, it might seem a bit strange. Uh, For some of us, it might raise all kinds of issues, uh, especially because some of us may not feel like our present relationship status is a gift from God. Uh, In fact, it might make us feel awkward or annoyed, um, especially when Christians in Christian circles, they throw around this phrase, you know, the gift of singleness, oh, the gift of singleness here and there. You may feel like if you're single that your singleness is more of a curse than a gift, a distraction and a frustration and even something that leads you into sin. May I at this point, I want to throw out a very quick public service announcement and say we need to be extremely careful when using this term, the gift of singleness. Because the gift in the area of marriage and singleness Uh, it doesn't always necessarily align with your current relationship status. If you were to look carefully at the text, uh, Paul is not saying that your gift is evident by your current status. Uh, In verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, that is, single, but each of you has your own gift from God. So bear with me here. What he's saying here is that it would be great if you were all gifted with the ability to be fully content in singleness. If you skip down to verse 32, he says this because then you would be free from concern, that is concern about the things of the world. Uh, In fact, here in verse 33, he lays out why it's important, why he wants people to be single as he is. He says, an unmarried man, well, he's concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man, he's concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests, they're divided. And he repeats himself again, this time about the wife. He's basically saying that that marriage, by its very nature, divides your priorities. You're focused, rightly I should add, you're focused rightly on the interest of your spouse and of God. And so when he says back here in verse 7 that I wish you were all as I am, he's not saying that I wish you were all single like I am. He's saying I wish you were all clear-minded and fully content in singleness as I am. Can you see the difference between the two of those things? 
That is the gift of singleness, a contentment in it, which enables you to practically uh, and psychologically and exclusively dedicate yourselves to the Lord's affairs, as verse 32 puts it, just as Paul is. That is the gift. So may I ask this evening uh, that we be careful, uh, we be charitable when throwing around the phrase, the gift of singleness. Uh, It is a gift, it is listed in here, but it has far more to do with someone's God-given ability to be content as a single person than it has to do with your current Facebook relationship status. Cool. So that's my public service announcement. Uh, to remind us that words, uh, they can be a very simple way of practically loving and caring for the people around you. And with that said, we're going to move on to point two, uh, to talk about uh, Paul and how he addresses questions of marriage from the Corinthians. Now, my household, we are a Vegemite household. It's a bit of a lie. We're mostly a Vegemite household. Um, I layer it on very, very thick. Uh, So does Heidi. So does my wife. Uh, My son, Jesse, on the other hand, he retches at the stuff, like physically. Um, Vegemite, it has this amazing power uh, to to divide people into extremes, just like that. I don't think there's any middle ground when it comes to Vegemite. You either think there's not enough in the little packet you get at the hotels or there's too much. Now, when it came to the understanding of, of sexual relations in Corinth, there seemed to be these two different extremes. On the one hand, you had the total sexual freedom wing of the church who thinks the body doesn't matter. They had no qualms about sleeping with the prostitute before turning up to church. And on the other hand was the complete abstinence camp, the one saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so Paul, while he wishes that everyone had this genuine gift of singleness that he had, uh, he knows uh, full well that it's just not going to be the case for some. In fact, in verse 9, he addresses these people that he quotes are are burning with passion. If I've got it up there. Now, these people, they're not literally burning, right? They're not on fire. Uh, These are people that are trying to live godly lives. Um, Potentially, they're they're single people trying to live single-mindedly for God, as Paul says. But at the same time, they're absolutely consumed. They're burning with passion with the idea of being in a relationship. There's someone who wants to live like Paul. They want to live the kind of Paul life, but they can't control their mind, as the text said. They can't control themselves, Uh, which basically means that they can't drop this idea of being partnered up and perhaps the intimacy that comes with that. And for these people, Paul says, well, they should marry if they can. If your mind is so consumed with finding a partner above all else, if you chose your church based on how many good-looking singles were there, or if you're the type of person who's distracted the whole way through those talks on a church camp uh, to the point where you can't really focus on the Bible talks because you're constantly trying to think about that girl you're going to see at the lunchtime event, well, you're not going to be of much use to the kingdom if this is your mind frame and it consumes you time and time again. And so Paul says you should get married. Because it's far better to do this, to have your concerns divided, as we looked at earlier on, divided between God and your spouse, than to have them completely consumed with the idea of finding a partner 24-7. Or as Paul puts it, to burn with passion. So Paul says if this is you, 
uh, trying to live the godly single life, but you're constantly consumed with the idea of finding a partner, then you should get married if you can. Now, when Paul addresses marriage in this chapter, when he goes on, uh, there's something that's really, really interesting that comes out of this, especially when we consider his personal situation. Uh, He's single, presumably uh, celibate and content, um, and he wishes that all were like him, content in singleness, but then he places this extraordinary importance on the place of sex, albeit within the bonds of marriage. Paul says, if you're married, you are under an obligation to fulfill your marital duties to your husband. You're not to deprive one another. Right, those two phrases from the NIV here, they're extraordinarily strong phrases. And he says that we must be doing these things, married couples, for two reasons. Uh, one, because your body belongs to your spouse. And two, because sex with one's spouse is one of the weapons that married couples have to fight against sexual temptation, which Paul attributes to the work of Satan in verse 6. Now, the reason this is so striking is because Paul himself, he was single. Uh, He was a champion of celibacy, uh, spruiking it from the mountaintops, or at least from the end of his quill as he's writing this thing. Um, He promoted and wished that everyone was celibate like him, while at the same time highlighting the necessity of sex. It is imperative for the success of a marriage. He's showing both extremes in Corinth, the the sexual liberty camp and the abstinence camp, that they're both wrong in some respects here. That sex, yes, it is only for marriage, but it's also essential for marriage. In fact, it is so essential that Paul only gives one allowable exception to this, and that is if by mutual consent, uh, this is verse 5, that is both parties agreeing for a time so they can devote themselves to prayer. Uh, And even then, the wording here, uh, the wording for a time, it indicates a special time. We're not meant to read this and think that that people are going, oh, look, do you feel like praying? Yeah, I feel like praying. All right, yeah, let's let's hold this off and let's pray. Rather, the idea behind this is for a time means there is something urgent that needs your attention. There is something that you need to pray for, something out of the ordinary that justifies abstaining for this time for the sake of giving it special attention. But even then, once that time has passed, Paul says married couples need to come back together quickly so as not to give Satan a foothold. It is essential for a healthy marriage. Now, if sex within marriage, if it's essential for fighting Satan's temptations, as we read here in verse 5, and if it's a way of dealing with sexual immorality, according to verse 2, then it's not hard to see why the health of a marriage marriage depends on this and how by depriving one another uh, is a problem. When there's a, a porn addiction that exists within marriage or the office co-worker starts flirting with you and you start to flirt back a little bit, it's all too easy to give in even just a little bit, and then inch by inch you give in until the marriage essentially is shipwrecked. Now the rest of this section, uh, verses 8 to 15, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. Paul lists off specific categories of marriage and divorce. 
Uh, he addresses issues of being married to unbelievers, uh, issues of divorce, when you kind of should and shouldn't separate, um, and things that Jesus himself has said about the matter are listed here as well. Uh, during the reading, you may have noticed that Paul had these interesting statements like, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And then in another instance, he says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Uh, with those two sections, uh, this isn't Paul saying that his words didn't have the authority uh, behind them. Uh, they certainly did. Paul isn't second-guessing himself in these verses. Rather, he's simply distinguishing between things that the Lord Jesus had actually addressed, uh, such as divorce, Matthew chapter 19, Mark 10, and things which Jesus doesn't specifically address, like what happens if you're married to an unbeliever, for example. And as we read on, uh, Paul really only turns his focus to singleness in next week's passage from verses 25 onwards, and that's what we're going to be looking at uh, next Sunday. Because what I want to do now uh, is have a very quick look at the strange way that Paul finishes this large chunk off. And this is going to make up the third point. So Paul addresses questions about marriage, uh, but being a faithful follower of Jesus is what really matters. Now, I don't know if you've uh, ever ridden one of those bucking bulls at all, the ones you kind of find perhaps at Lone Star or similar places, uh, where you think you look at someone or you're riding it yourself and go, oh, yeah, I'm kind of getting the hang of this. Yeah, oh, I could ride this thing forever. And then suddenly the bull changes directions and it throws you off, right? With all this talk of marriage in the passage, well, it might seem odd when you get to verses 17 to 24 that Paul starts harping on about the circumcised and the uncircumcised and about slaves and, and whether or not they should gain their freedom. It's almost like the bull, it, it's changed direction and if you're not paying attention in this passage, you're going to get thrown off. You're not going to understand what he's talking about here. But Paul, he says, no, you very much are still on the same ride here. He has a point he's trying to make and he hasn't forgotten. While, yes, he is addressing the questions they've sent to him, uh, the really specific one today about sexual relations. But Paul uses that question then as a launching pad, as a clever segue into highlighting what really matters in the Christian life. And it's found in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God had called them. This is what he's getting at in the entire passage. That any Christian, you and I, should ultimately be focusing on how we can best serve the Lord wherever we are at, wherever God has placed us. Are you stuck in a job that you hate? A dead-end job? Well, focus on how you can best serve the Lord in that job. Are you single and, and desperately wanting a partner? Well, focus, while you can in your singleness, on serving the Lord the best way you can, given the circumstances you're in. Are you married and perhaps struggling in marriage? Maybe things weren't as, as smooth as you'd hoped they were initially. Focus on how you can best serve the Lord in the circumstances God has called you into. 
Is your life not where you thought it would be at this stage? Which I think we all go through from time to time. Focus on how you can best serve the Lord in the circumstances he has called you in that moment. These are the things that we need to hear. And sometimes it might be difficult to hear. There'll be times when we hear it, times when we don't. Uh, especially if we're stuck in a particularly hard situation and someone says, oh, just serve the Lord in that situation. It can be very difficult to hear those things. Perhaps we need someone to talk to, someone to help guide us along. And with this, I, I want us to very quickly just look around the room here tonight. I'm not just saying it. Have a look around the room. See who's next to you. See who's behind you. Have a look at the types of people we have There's a diversity of experience in this room. There's a diversity of age in this room. A diversity of relationship status. Diversity of race and of skills and of wisdom. And there's a diversity of different stages people are walking in the Christian life. These are all the people we have at our disposal in this church. And I think it's an absolute blessing So can I encourage you, perhaps talk to someone when you're feeling lost in the Christian walk. Maybe read your Bible with someone. Maybe you can try and do it on a regular basis. Pray with someone. It's a novel idea to lift your worries and things to God in prayer with someone who knows and loves you. As for their guidance, seek guidance from the people around you. If you know someone's in a similar situation or they've been through what you're currently going through, Seek their wisdom. Ask them how you can live for God in whatever situation you're currently finding yourself in. You see, Paul says you have so many brothers and sisters to call upon to help you here. If we look again at the text, he says, live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. And he sneaks this little one in here. He says, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you have a ton of help. There are many brothers and sisters around you. But he's also pastorally caring for them by saying that I'm not being overly harsh on you when I say to be content in whatever gift God has given you. Because I command this in all the churches. This is something that applies across the board even today. But what this also means when you read between the lines is that there are good, faithful Christians who can help you think through these things who can help you process some of these questions you might have, who can encourage you, who can give you strength to live out your life, to live for Jesus, to put him first, even in the more difficult times, to live as a believer, to serve the Lord in whatever circumstance he has called you into. So as we finish up today, uh, how about I pray? Uh, We thank God uh, for his gifts for us, but we also ask for his help Uh, wherever we're at, um, each and every day in our walk this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our hearts better than we even know ourselves. Lord, you are the beginning and the end. You fearfully and wonderfully made us. Father, I pray that you would uh, convict us uh, as a church tonight to consider how you've placed each and every one of us. Help us to consider how we might faithfully live for you in whatever circumstances you've put us in. Lord, there are many of us in this room, some 
perhaps not where we thought we should be by this point in our lives. Some of us have plans that weren't fulfilled. Others of us have fulfilled those plans and it wasn't what we were expecting. Lord, we have people here who've weathered various trials and temptations and remained faithful to you. So Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to seek comfort and wisdom from one another here tonight as we seek to faithfully live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.